Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Central Hope once again. As you guys are returning to your seat, let me just set the stage for what we're going to be doing for the month of October. One of the things that I always do in the fall is to kind of set um, some big ideas for the church, for what is Central Hope. And this particular fall, we're going to begin looking um, at what, what we call repent and be loved. We have three values at Central Hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and all that it means for us, and we preach it every single week, and when we meet together in person, we focus on the gospel, and we highlight what it means for us. The gospel is preeminent for, for what we do, the values that we hold. Secondly, we value community, being together, um, being loving one another, and, and preaching the gospel to one another, and bearing one another's burden. And lastly, we value discipleship. When Jesus um, ascended into heaven, the last thing that he said before he ascended was go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We have in this one statement a mission statement for the church, discipleship, make disciples. And so we value what Jesus values, discipleship. So we have these three values, gospel, community, and discipleship. And so we want, to know, we want you to value what we value as a church. So how do we value these three realities? Well, we're going to help you do that. We're going to give you a tool called repent and be loved. And it's it's mixture of the gospel. It's a mixture of discipleship. And then we're going to meet together in our community groups and discuss all that we're talking about here, what it means to repent and be loved from four particular areas of our life, repenting of our our need to be significant, repenting of our need for control, repenting of our need for comfort, not not of our need, excuse me, for the ways that we seek it ourselves. I'm sorry, that was terrible. We, We need comfort and significance and control. You don't need to repent of those things. But there are areas in which we seek those realities that is not from God. And so we're going to look at that. But to set the stage for this series, this, these tools, we're going to look at what it means to repent. Because what I've come to learn is that people have a weird view of repentance. So if you have a Bible, um, I would I'd suggest turning there uh, to, to your Bible. And, and what I want to encourage you to do, because it's not in your bulletin today, because we're going to be reading the entire chapter of Luke 15, and that's a significant passage. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back, on the back, by the back door, and on the back table over there. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take it. It's yours to keep. We want to make sure that people have your Bible. You can also follow along on your phone. But we're going to be looking at Luke 15, and, and it's important because I'll be drawing you back to that. So just keep your Bible open. Um, you, you, there's plenty of space for notes as well. Um, so there, there, there you have it. Um, so looking at two texts, Matthew 4, 17 and Luke 15. Let me read from God's word. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, 
There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give, the share, give me the share of property. That is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, well, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, knowledge is power. Knowledge can topple powerful regimes. Regimes. It can transform the world we live in, and it can transform the world of those we love. Knowledge has power. Do you believe that? In the last 500 years, there is one piece of knowledge that I think trumps all other knowledge in terms of its transformative effect. It's an idea, a thought, it's knowledge that has come out of the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. At the center of this Protestant Reformation was a man named Martin Luther. He was a Roman Catholic monk who penned a document titled the 95 Theses. He hung these theses, these, these statements, on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany to debate the way the Roman Catholic Church operated and worked. He didn't intend for everything to change as it did. But indeed, this one small moment changed everything. Knowledge is power. What was the knowledge that elicited so much power? 
Now, as a person who attended a school called Reformed Theological Seminary, a seminary that surrounded the Protestant Reformation, you would think someone like myself would know the knowledge that changed all things. But I'll never forget being in one of those classes when one of my professors goes, you guys are great Reformed scholars, right? And we're all like, yeah, yeah, we are. He's like, but do you know the one thing that started the Reformation. And in this room, I want to set the, st- the stage, there are people, men and women, who have gotten PhDs from places like Oxford and Cambridge. Things like this. These are, these are high-level thinkers. And my professor asked, what is it, what was the one thought that sparked the Reformation, that changed the world, that put you and me in the seats that we're in right now? What is the one thought? And we all sat there in silence. Silence. Most people have no clue the one thought that changed it, neither did I. And the professor looked out in the class and he goes, I just want you to know, it only takes one thesis to understand what changed the world. And he read the first thesis that Martin Luther penned on the 95 thesis. I'll read it to you right now. The first thesis that Martin Luther penned was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be of one of repentance. At the heart, at the heart of Luther's transformative knowledge and document was repentance. And he looked at the Roman church at the time and he saw that it had become overly political and deeply mixed into, his political, into this political and institutional power was its understanding of repentance or its failure to understand biblical repentance. And Luther, when he started to read the Bible, goes, we gotta talk about this. We gotta talk about what repentance is because I don't think you're lined up. And really, the rest is history. They had a trial for him. They, they, they said, you're a heretic. But then he started to really unpack what it was that we're looking at today, which is repentance. Repentance has the power to transform the world. And I don't mean that hyperbolically. I have history to back it up. Perhaps you're sitting there and going, There are things in my life that I want to drop, that I want to get rid of. I want to change. I don't want to do the things that I want to do. And I don't know how to get away from this. It's repentance. Repentance has the power to transform lives, not just the world. The thing is, do you know what repentance is? Do you know what biblical repentance is? And sadly, so much of my experience with the church, and Lord willing, not this church, but so much of my experience in the church is that the church has still failed to understand what repentance is. And so we've got to get back to repentance, to true biblical repentance, that we might take hold of the power that true repentance holds. Where do we find the definition or a true understanding of repentance. It comes from Luke 15. As far as I'm concerned, Luke 15 is the best text for understanding and defining true biblical repentance. 
And sadly, this text is often viewed improperly. And I take great issue, if you have a, an English Standard Version Bible, I take great issue with the little subheadings that they put into this. It, you, you might see it. It says the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the, or the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost son. And when we see it as three different parables, we actually disconnect what it really is. If you look at verse three, it's one parable. It's one parable. Three stories, but one parable. And I'm gonna tell you, it's one parable about repentance. And I wanna show you why. Luke 15 is one parable about repentance. Let's look at these three stories very briefly, real briefly. In the first story, Jesus says that there's a sheep that is lost. And after, after the sheep is lost, a search begins, and when the sheep is found, a party breaks out. And then he concludes the story saying it this, just so I tell you, there's more joy in heaven when one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So he's, 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 he's telling you what the significant, repentance, right? So then he tells the second story. And the second story is much like the first. Something is lost, something is found, something is celebrated, something or he concludes it the way he did the first one. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you see this, something lost, something found, something celebrated, and then lastly, the point of the, the story. And the point of the story being one of repentance. You see this? You see how he's telling the story? Now you go to the third story. And now the third story is the beloved story, and it's the one that takes up most of this parable. And that's for good reason. But let's look at this. Just like the first two stories, something is lost. Something is lost. And that which is lost is the younger son. The father throws the party for the son when he returns home because he said, my son was lost and is now found. So here, you have the first two themes already established in the third story. Something lost, something found. And then what's the third theme that we see in this third story? A party to celebrate it, much like the first two stories, something lost, something found, something to celebrate. But there's something glaringly obvious that is omitted in Jesus' third story. And what is it? It is Jesus' phrase on repentance. The third story doesn't conclude like the first two stories. Jesus makes no mention of repentance like he does in the first two stories. Why? I believe it's because Jesus is using this third story to teach the religious leaders who are grumbling around him for eating with sinners and tax collectors what true repentance really is. People who have had a warped view need to know what true biblical repentance is. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time looking closely at this third story because it's in this third story that we find what true repentance is. It's in this story we actually find what true repentance is not. And it's in this story we find what compels all of us to true repentance, to find the transformative power of repentance. So let's look at what Jesus teaches in diving deep into this story to see what true repentance is not, or what repentance is not, what repentance is, and what compels us to repentance. So if you like to take notes, those are the three, three categories we're gonna look at. What repentance is not, what repentance is, and what compels us to repent. I want us to take hold of repentance and experience its transforming power because my friends, it has incredible transforming power. But what is, what, what, 
What isn't? <laughs> I don't know if that's grammatically correct. What isn't repentance? I don't know if you've ever gone to a store and you've taken your crisp, clean $20 bill and you, you, know, you pay for your groceries and the, the grocery clerk takes this magic pen out. I don't know if you've ever done this. And they'll swipe this, that, I love those crisp, clean $20 bills. They look nice, you know. And I've never had it where like the pen color comes up wrong. But I imagine, you would know this, that if that pen color comes up wrong, if they slice or they, they color that thing, it comes up blue, let's say. They know, and you now know, that that $20 bill is what? Counterfeit. It looks real, it feels real, it smells real, but it's a fake. In this third story that Jesus uses in his parable, I think that there is counterfeit repentance given to us. Jesus displays to us counterfeit repentance. It's a repentance that looks real, it feels real, but at the end of the day, it is a repentance that lacks the power that true repentance holds. So you see, in the first two stories that Jesus used um, in, the, in this parable, he used the word metanunti for repentance. And metanunti in the Greek means this, a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. So if you want to get from like at the heart, like just a basic understanding of repentance, it's a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. And while we don't see this, third, or this word used in the third story, it is certainly taking place. You recall, the younger son, when he's away from his family and his life has hit rock bottom because of a famine, and he's in the pig pen, his face seemingly down in the mud, he has a change of mind which results in a change of lifestyle. And look at verse 17. This is, we get into his mind and we see what he's reasoning. He says first, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hungry, hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'm gonna say to him three things. He says he plans to say three things to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Right here, we see how this man thinks of repentance. And you might think, like, it looks like real repentance. It feels like re real repentance. But is it real repentance? You know, he acknowledges his sin before his dad and against God. He acknowledges the consequences that his actions have brought about. And finally, he seeks to pay off the debt for the rest of his life. I mean, that, that sounds like repentance. Is it? I want you to consider how the story unfolds, though. In verse 20, the man finally goes to his father. And while he's away, the father sees him from afar, and he comes to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. And you'll see that in this verse, he begins to speak what he had planned. He says, Father, just like he had planned, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Secondly, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But at that word, at that word, the father commands his servants to bring the best robe. At that word, the ring that he has and the shoes and the fattened calf was killed. There's another intentional omission that is left out. Can you spot it? Do you know it? What is it? It was that third phrase the younger son was going to say. And I think it's worthy that we look at this third phrase because it is this third phrase that I'm telling you is counterfeit repentance. 
What is the third phrase that the younger son prepared to say to his father? Treat me as one of your hired servants. The omission leads us to believe certainly that there's an improper understanding of repentance. And this is because at the heart of this statement, this younger son wants to be treated as a slave. The word used is doulos, which is slave. Someone who makes their standing up by what they do. They belong with a lot of effort and with a lot of will. And certainly we can understand why a younger son would do such a thing after he's asked his dad for his inheritance and basically been like, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to live however I want to live. And now he comes crawling back. We can certainly understand. Yeah, you want to make your keep in this house? You better work your tail off. You better put blood, sweat, and tears into this. That's what we think. But here's the thing about such an attitude like that. Such an attitude reflects how he once lived in a similar way. It was, in some ways, it's a religious spin on an irreligious life. It was pure and utter self-reliance, just in a different way. So he had self-reliance. He wanted to live how he wanted to live. But now he has what, how he wants to live in a different way. I'm going to live, I'm going to make my own keep by doing what you expect of me. This is how I'm going to be received by you. You know, so often religious people, people that are like you and me, think of repentance as turning from doing bad things and then starting to do good. Because ultimately that's what repentance is, right? It's turning from one way of life to another way of life. It's turning from our godlessness and turning to godliness. But here's the thing. This, such thinking, is counterfeit repentance. This sort of thinking lacks the power that true repentance holds. Because this sort of thinking still relies on one's own willpower and oneself. And if there's anything that the younger brother knows that the older brother knows, it's that self-reliance Put your face down in the mud. It only creates need. Can you relate to this type of repentance or understanding repentance in this sort of way? That when you have sinned knowingly or even ignorantly, you feel this sense that you have to make amends with God and others so that God might accept you, that the church might accept you. That you have to change the way you do things, clean it up. I mean, it's not uncommon. I experienced it myself. You're like, I, I gotta begin tithing now and serve in the church because this is what I'm supposed to do. You, you're, you'll say the Bible is your favorite book now that the, you, your face is down in the mud. You'll make vows to God promising your eternal allegiance to him if he'll take you back. But you have to see that this sort of repentance is simply just another form of self-reliance that lacks the power to change our hearts. We'll never find the heavenly power, the power to transform our hearts when we turn simply from our godlessness and commit ourselves to godliness. There's no power in that. This is simply counterfeit repentance. If this is your understanding of repentance, I simply have two things for you. Stop first. Stop thinking that this is repentance. Such thinking has plagued the church for too long. And it is this sort of thinking that continues to keep people in their sin and churches in neutral. Stop. Secondly, listen. True and powerful repentance is not far 
from your understanding. And it's vital that we listen and continue to listen to what Jesus has to say to us about true repentance in Luke 15. And that's what I want us to do right now, to listen and to see what Jesus has for us in true repentance so that we might take hold of its power. So what is, after all, true repentance? I told you it's not far off from what we've already looked at, but let's look at it again. Look at the text. What, recall what happened with the younger son after he reasoned with himself and the pigs. He goes to his father. He confesses that he has sinned against heaven and against his father. He acknowledges that he's no longer worthy to be called his son. And he receives the embrace of the father and enters the party that is being thrown in his honor. This simple interaction provides for us a clarifying picture of what repentance is. It is going to God. It is confessing your sin to him. It is acknowledging your sin's consequences and the shame that your consequences of your sins bring upon you. And it is being embraced by a merciful father who celebrates your repentance. The way I like to think of it is this. Repentance is not turning from our godlessness and turning to godliness. Repentance is turning from our godlessness and turning to God. Those are big and significant differences, but we have to embrace that difference. You know who this is really hard for, though? It's for really hard for the religious, the people who have done really good, who are always at church, who are tithing their money and doing all the things that they're supposed to do. You know, like the scribes and the Pharisees who, who Jesus is telling this story to. This is really hard for them. Of course, the third story describes how it's hard for that type of person. You recall the, old, there's a, the, the end of the story captures the older brother who's ticked that the younger son who's returned back to the father and has been embraced by the father and been celebrated by the father, he's what? He is so frustrated that the father would throw a party for this brother of his who has used his money in illicit ways. He can't stand it. One of the most fascinating statements to me of the older brother in this story is how he thought his life would bring about a party. How is it that he thought that his life would bring about a party? It was the same thing that the younger brother thought repentance was. Slavery. Serving. Do you remember what he says to his father? All these years I have been slaving, serving you, and yet you have never thrown me a party. The religious are the ones who think repentance is turning from our godlessness to godliness. But those who truly repent are those who turn from their godlessness to God. There's a significant difference. You see, when we turn to God and not to godliness, we are turning to one who we stand and have no control over. You know, if we slave away, we think we slave, we think we're trying to earn our keep, but if we turn to him and we say, God, I've sinned against you, treat me, you know, don't, don't, just if I've sinned against you, all we have before him is what? Mercy and grace. And the question for all of us in this room is God merciful and gracious? 
Because that's going to be the only thing that will ever motivate you to turn from your godlessness and to turn to God. True repentance is turning from our godlessness to God. But what's going to motivate you? God's mercy and grace. So finally, thirdly, what's going to motivate you? It's, it's a beautiful picture of God. You know, in three weeks from now, the Razorbacks are going to play UAPB at War Memorial Stadium not far from here. And if history holds true on the corner of Fair Park and Markham, there will be street preachers on the corners screaming to the passing crowds with a vitriolic voice, Repent! You heathens! Repent! And every time I see it, I'm like, I've done it with my son before. I'm always like, okay, come on over here. Let's go over here. And in all the years, and I'm not, I'm not going to knock them completely, but in all my years, I've never seen anyone passing by them going, oh, yes, yes, I repent. If anything, everyone's like, okay, don't look at these people. Why? Because all those people are trying to do is motivate you to become more godly. Yes, there's a place for a prophetic voice. But I think Jesus in this story, more than anything, wants to paint a picture, not necessarily of a prophetic voice, but of a God who is beautiful beyond our even comprehension. And there's two facets, two facets or two pictures of God that Jesus gives in this parable that, that gives us this beautiful picture of God. There's two. First, we see the beauty of God in the Father of the two sons. And there's five astounding characteristics of this father that I want you to simply just look at. I want you to see first, the text says the father is compassionate. You see, when the, when the son was far away, he sees him, and then he runs to him. It implies that the father is looking, longing and waiting. He wants his son home, and he doesn't care where he spent his money. He didn't care where he's been. He just wants his son home, and he's longing, and he's looking, and when he sees him, he runs to him with great compassion in his heart, and he kisses him. Jesus is painting a picture of who God is. What does he tell in the first two stories? There's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Compassion. Their celebration. Secondly, a, a, another beautiful characteristic of the father is that he listens. He listens. The son begins to speak what he had rehearsed. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father is right there listening to him. And he doesn't say it, but I just imagine tears in his eyes, just a nodding face. I know. I know. Listening. Thirdly, the father interrupts. The father interrupts the son in his, his planned speech. You, you recall, he, he was going to say three things, but he only gets two. And then verse 21, perhaps some of the most beautiful three words in all of the Bible, it says, but the father. He immediately interrupts him. I don't know if he was going to say it, but he planned it. But the father interrupts him. He had heard enough. He steps in and says, I, I got you. He interrupts in a beautiful, loving way. Fourthly, this beautiful God clothes his son. Father clothes his son. He sees his son in rags. He sees that his shoes are tattered, and he's dirty. 
But he tells his servant, get the finest robe we have. Get new shoes. This life of independence has left this son of mine in tatters. He's gone on his own. But I'm coming. And I got you. And I'm going to clothe you. Lastly, the father celebrates the return of the son. There's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. He celebrates. He kills the fattened calf. And they have a great feast. He celebrates. Let me ask, is this how you understand God? Do you understand that when you repent, that he celebrates the occasion? Or do you think God is more relieved and will deal with you in the morning type thing? Because that's how often we think of it. But that's not how God is. He celebrates. Considering who God is and what he's done, my friends, repent. Turn from your godlessness. Turn to God. But I love it. There's a second picture of God in this text that compels us to repentance. And that second picture of God in this parable is the person of Jesus You know, if you step out of the story for just a second, most of the characters in the story, the parables that Jesus tells, can be easily identified in the setting where the story was being told. So the younger brother are the sinners and the tax collectors that Jesus is hanging around. You kind of get that. The older brother in the story is the religious leaders criticizing Jesus for eating with those sinners. The father in the story, in in Jesus' parable, is is God the Father. The question is, Who is Jesus? Because Jesus is there. Jesus Jesus is part of this, right? I want to bring about a third glaring omission from this third story. And it's not easily identifiable from this text. We have to consider the culture in which this story is being told. Culturally speaking, if something like Jesus' story had ever unfolded, so the younger son goes off and spends his father's Um, inheritance recklessly. It was expected that the older brother, the oldest male in the family, would seek that person, would find them, and bring them back. You see, one of the omissions that he has in the third story is, remember, something lost? A search takes place, then something is found. Where's the search in this third story? There was no search. Who is responsible for searching for the lost brother, the oldest brother. What is Jesus showing to us in this story? He's saying, I'm the oldest brother, and you want to know why I'm sitting here with sinners and tax collectors? Because I'm seeking to save that which is lost. And you Pharisees and scribes and people, you think with your rules and your godliness that you're trying to impose on these people, you're going to try to win them back. That's not how it goes. Because repentance is not turning from our godlessness to godliness. Repentance is turning from our godlessness to God. And they have to see a beautiful picture of God. And this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. I'm showing my people how beautiful God is that when they are face down in the mud from their self-reliance, then they look up and they go, what else do I have? I've got a beautiful God that I can run to. But here's what I love about our older brother. 
Because I think there's something that you, you can per- perceive from the older brother in this story. Uh, t- take it back to the story. Remember, the, 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 the younger brother asked for his inheritance, and the father does that. He splits up his resources, his assets, liquidizes it, and gives it to the, old, the younger brother, and he goes and spends it. Who has the rest of the money? Who's the money left over for? It's the older brother, right? That's his money. And so when the younger son comes back, one of the reasons why I think he's so ticked that this younger son is back and he's wearing the ring and he's wearing the shoes and he's wearing the robe is because that older brother is going, that is mine. You've already spent all your money and you can't have that. That's mine. And here's what Jesus is saying. You want to know what? I'm going to give it to you. It's not yours. But as your older brother, I'm going to pay for this party with my blood. And I'm going to give you the robe of righteousness that my life has earned. And I'm going to clothe you in it. Jesus gives this glaring omission because he wants these people And he wants us today to see that indeed Jesus is our older brother who seeks us in our lostness. And he shows us that he is willing to pay for the party, holding no grudges for the life you lived. So my friends, we have this beautiful picture of God. He's compassionate. He listens he, he, he interrupts us. He celebrates us. It's beautiful. But we have this beautiful picture of Jesus and what he's done. He seeks us and he pays for the party when we return. So when your face is down in the mud and it might just be on the side of your pillow and you're going, life is difficult, repent. Turn from your godlessness and run to God. He is a beautiful beautiful God. You see, when when you do that, there's incredible power that is set in your life. Power to overcome sins that you feel like you've never been able to overcome. Power to triumph over your children's hearts. When you see this, that all of life is one of repentance, turning from our godlessness and turning to God, there is great power. Now, we've got lots of work to do. We've got areas in our lives where we need to repent, and that's what we're gonna do for the next four weeks. We're gonna look at the ways that we look for significance in our own strength, in our own power. We're gonna look at the ways that we try to seek control in our own ways, in our own power. We're gonna look at the ways that we look to, to feel comforted in this life with material possessions and those sorts of things. And we're gonna look at the ways that we look to people and their acceptance of us to find life. And we're going to dig deep. But more than anything, I want you to understand true repentance. True repentance is turning from our godlessness and turning to our beautiful God who is rich in mercy and grace. When we do, there's a mighty power coming for you. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for the ways that you have demonstrated your faithfulness to us, the ways that you have sought us. Oh, your mercy and grace is so profound and so difficult for us to comprehend. But where else can we turn? 
If we turn to ourselves, we fall flat on our face time and time again. All we have is you. And so, Lord, may we be compelled by your beauty and your goodness and your grace that we might find your transforming power, power to make the dead alive again.